Grab your popcorn and silence those cell phones because the show is about to start. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick Blaine is an award-winning film critic featured on TheBigScreen.net.org and has been highlighted on over 75 unreleased independent film posters in less than 12 different countries. Nick Brown. He's been the high school projectionist for the AV Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now, they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Hey, we're back again. Another episode of the podcast. Welcome along, movie lovers. It's Rick and Nick Talk Flicks, sponsored by the Bemidji Theater. Welcome back. It's great to be with you once again. I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Dave Brooks. Obviously, no Rick, no Nick. Apparently, they got punched out. They got punched out like this the time. stunt performers they are. They're stunt performers. Well, they, Those two prima donnas are stunt performers. I think when the knuckles come in, there's no more choice. You are a stunt performer. Wow. I'm a little surprised. They seemed like they were a little more highbrow than being stunt performers. I think they were in the theater taking credit for our work. And, you know, even though we take their show, they got all, somebody was apparently aware. Then you guys aren't really Dave and Joel. What are you talking about, Rick and Nick? Done. Wow. They got Jujibees stuck onto their face. It was awesome. And so they couldn't come into work today because they were still smarting from that. You said it, prima donnas. Oh, I can't, my jaw sucks. I can barely speak. Those are the kind of excuses that we get from them, so it makes sense. So in recognition of that, we thought we would uh, put a spotlight on the tough guys today. Absolutely. But first, we do want to remind you that Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater. We love having them on board as our sponsor of the podcast. It's a great place to go and catch a movie. If you go to the Bemidji Theater, you can go there on Tuesdays. They've got their $5 movie nights. The theater is located on Highway 2, just across from the airport here in Bemidji, and it's a great place to go catch a film. Hey, two things uh, current day worth talking about here real quick. First of all, uh, following up on something we had talked about when we did our uh, Oscars show a while back, we had talked about the Oscars wanted to introduce a brand new category, Best Popular Film, and you and I were talking about that. Well, yeah. the backlash, not just from us, apparently the Oscars have decided not to not do it. They have officially decided to postpone that new award really? category. Really? That's news to me. So they're saying they're they're not saying they're never going to do it. They're going to do the other things. Some of those uh, smaller award categories they're going to give away during the commercial breaks. They're really going to try to keep the show short. But the most popular movie Oscar award, they have decided they will not implement it for the next upcoming Oscars. Maybe never, but the the word they used was postpone. <laughs> so we'll see. Hopefully they'll postpone it forever. And apparently it wasn't just the fan backlash. They had a, a meeting, a closed-door meeting with several members of the Academy, some big names. Spielberg was in on this meeting apparently, uh, other people that are well-known, and they all raised, well, we have concerns about this. Yeah. Actually, I do like the statement that they released. They said that, quote, implementing any new award nine months into the year creates challenges for films that have already been released and that the proposal needed further discussion. I think that's actually some reasonable uh, some reasonable perception from them about that. First of all, that they were willing to listen to the kind of backlash that they got and say, hey, maybe we got this wrong. And secondly, that they recognized that, yeah, deciding to come up with a new category this far into the year 
was not exactly the greatest idea because it does create a problem. And I did think about that originally a little bit, didn't really discuss it last time, but you're coming up with this new category midway through the new year and you're going to implement it for this upcoming Oscars. Don't think that was going to work too well. well honestly, I don't think that's a, a really an honest uh, concern on their part. I think I, I don't know who said the quote, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but it absolutely sums up my thoughts on the matter. Um, we'll give it to Steven Spielberg. Why not? You know, who knows? It was that this makes an Oscar handed out a popularity contest and not yep. on merits of excellence. And that is absolutely true. We always kind of knock the fact that Shakespeare in Love beat out Saving Private Ryan, which was the better movie. Not the most popular movie, but the better movie. You know, and that's what Oscars need to be handed out for, not the ones that necessarily are going to be, well, this was the greatest movie ever. Yeah, but this was truly artisanship, and that's why it got the award. Right, and and they had kind of – it feels like the Academy has kind of shied away from giving popular movies best picture. Maybe because the they're popular. Maybe because they're popular, well, exactly. It, it feels like they have had that kind of mentality that – we can't give this award to you because you're too mainstream in this way. And it's like, give me a break. You're one of the biggest, taking it too seriously. What's like considered that. one of the biggest Oscar snubs in the last decade was that The Dark Knight wasn't even nominated for Best Picture. You know, we've, we've talked, talked about, we've talked that. about yeah. that. So that's that's maybe an attempt to merit something, but you can't turn the Oscars into a popularity contest. Regardless of what the Academy is saying, the reason is, there's always a reason to say, well, we're not going to do it because of this, rather than saying, hey, we made a poor decision. We've, we're just going to backtrack on our poor decision, and that is a good decision. So that is something new. The other thing that's interesting, which could have some interesting implications down the road in the in the wake of the you know 20th Century Fox and Disney merger, uh, about 10 years ago, Viacom and CBS and Paramount, they all basically had a corporate divorce. Well, news coming out yesterday that Les Moonves, who's in charge of CBS, he's been having a big problem with Sherry Redstone, who's basically in charge of Viacom and Paramount. Well, Moonves is out uh, for a couple of reasons, but part of the Me Too movement comes to mind. So that opens up the possibility, when will there be a reemergence, perhaps, between CBS and Paramount and get them back together? Could CBS be sold off as a separate company to something else? Uh, and me being a Star Trek fan, part of that divorce that happened was Star Trek split. Anything that was on TV and future TV is owned by CBS. All the films are on the Paramount side. Right. And there's no collaboration anymore between either side. And they're moving forward with more. So that's why there's such a disconnect in the appearance of, you know, if you go back to like the Picard and Kirk era, there's a there's something that was, you know, you could see a connection more than just the story, more than just the history. You could just a visual thing. Because yes. they had the same people kind of working on all of them. And it worked. It had a kind of a look of continuity. So And you miss that, clearly. I, I do, but it's also, you know... But it's it, understandable that that's not always going to be the case. You can't always get that. But it's limiting. You know, let's say CBS has a great show and they own the rights to the show, but not the movies. They can't make the leap to the big screen. They can't do a Star Trek movie based on any of the shows. Um, so Star Trek Discovery will never make the leap to the big screen because they can't do a movie as part of the deal. It just was extremely limiting. So now with Moonves out, it's an interesting behind-the-scenes aspect, and clearly I'm rooting for the Star Trek component, but there's other things that come into play here too. So could CBS become part of Viacom Paramount again? 
stay tuned. We'll see. Okay. So that's current events. That's what's going on. In terms of consistency, that would be nice. One yeah. one other note, this is on a sadder note, the passing of Burt Reynolds as yeah. well from this past week. Um, that, True yeah, icon. Yeah, quite an icon in movies. I was reading something interesting regarding Burt Reynolds, how he had opportunities to be in some really big roles. Oh, yeah. He was up for some really big roles. And yet it seemed that Burt Reynolds really enjoyed taking on the enjoyable, fun roles in the movies that he ended up being in and making them into something. He was a guy who simply had a really great time being in the movies while making movies that would have people come and really enjoy being at the movie theater to go watch. Yeah, I agree. I know it's, it's, I've seen two types of responses in the wake of his passing. One of them is people that were too young to know Burt Reynolds in the first place, and so Burt Reynolds' past means nothing to them, which is kind of sad. The other problem is, or the other response is that people said, I don't know who he was, but clearly he made a massive, massive impact, and I will miss him not understanding who he was, but understanding that he was enough of an impact that it's making this kind of right. impact yeah, because I haven't even watched that many of Burt Reynolds' movies, or only portions of his movies. But he still was incredibly impactful with just you talk to people about Burt Reynolds. You know, they, especially action movie aficionados or people who liked his kinds of films. Oh, it's he was the guy, he, he was held, the man. He held his own against Star Wars in the summer of 77. The, num- the number one movie, of course, Star Wars. Number two. Smokey and the Bandit. That's right. And it'll make for a pretty good segue into what we're going to be talking about today because Burt Reynolds, in an unofficial capacity, was a stuntman in a lot of ways. And he was good buddies with some of the best yep. stuntmen out there. I was just thinking that, yeah, that it, it kind of suits pretty well with what we're talking about today with discussing stunt work in the movies because, yeah, Burt Reynolds had his own little bit of that too. Burt Reynolds, what he was best for wasn't always the movies. It was who he was as a character. In a lot of ways, we had talked about, you know, the brand of the type of character. Just about every Burt Reynolds movie, mostly, he's playing a version of what he always does. You know, some actors are chameleons and they completely disappear in one role or another. Burt Reynolds essentially gives you a version of Burt Reynolds in every movie, but he was just oozing charisma that you were dying to see it, whether he was sitting on the couch with Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show or he was flying over a river in a Trans Am and smoking the bandit. Yeah. Um, he was really, really something. Even if the movie was bad, he was fun to watch in I, it. I just, I still find it amazing all of the roles that he turned down over oh, yeah. the years. I didn't realize that um, that he potentially turned down James Bond. Yeah. That was one. But that was smart. Yeah, if that he had was, done Bond, it would have blown up in his face. It it wouldn't have worked out. I don't think. I, I think they were trying to find like a different kind of formula then when they, when well, they tried to have him if, be Bond. But I'm, going, I'm glad that didn't yeah, work out. He knew they were going the wrong way. Han Solo. That yeah. amazed me that he almost potentially played Han Solo. It's it's one of those things. It's like those alternate realities of how would this have been had this changed? Because we don't really know because we we just know it to be what it has always been with. Harrison Ford being Han Solo. Richard Gere's role in Pretty Woman? Yeah. I was like, what? Yeah. He was up for that? Yeah. That that just strikes me as being so, so odd. Um, Jack Nicholson's role in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, as well as his role in terms of endearment. Bruce Willis's role in Die Hard? He was almost John McClane? Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. 
Wow. But honestly, you know, the, the guys that took those roles ultimately, they made it their own to a point. I could never see anybody other than Bruce Willis being McLean. I could never see anybody exactly. but Harrison Ford doing Indiana Jones, uh, so but on would, and so forth. But would we have said that if it had been Burt Reynolds in those roles? That's one of those always. Uh, that's one of those funny what ifs with with yeah. things like that. But you know, sometimes the way that those movies get hit right on the head. I mean, they just were perfect. It's yep. not to say that Burt Reynolds or any other actor would have done a poor job, but maybe all those perfect ingredients coming together to make the final product what it was, maybe you're just a little low on the yeast and it would rise, but not to the point that it ultimately did. And maybe there's a better yeast. I can't believe I'm calling Harrison Ford a yeast, but there we go. Uh, if Harrison Ford uh, wasn't the best Indiana Jones, what if Tom Selleck ultimately got the role and he was just slightly better than Ford? Yeah. Would have been? I mean, who knows? Yeah. But it's interesting to think about. So. All right, so stunt work is what we're discussing today. And and stunts in the movies, really, on the whole. It's not just about the stunt work itself and the women and men who help make stunts happen, but also just stunts in movies in general. Because I think when you watch movies today, I think there's a growing revitalization, perhaps, of... Practical. of practicality when it comes to stunts and the importance of them yeah I, the stunts work is kind of the unsung hero of movies in a lot of ways they don't get the recognition i think and a lot of people think that they're deserving of um and with the passing of burt reynolds it kind of got you thinking i was watching a james bond the other movie the other day and there's some amazing stunt work there um got you thinking about it there's no oscar for stunt awards i think the stunts the stunt society, whatever you want to call it, has their own awards, but that's not good enough. You know, I think they need to be recognized at the very least with a Golden Globe, at the minimum. I mean, that's, but there should be an Oscar too, whether it gets put into the technical category or whether it's, you know, they're trying to shorten up the telecast. So, okay, it doesn't make the show, but there should be one because there have been some amazing stunts over the years. And when they're not there, you would miss them as much as if there was no score. We had discussed this when we were talking about what has happened to movies over the past two, three decades in terms of facing fluctuation in quality. And one of the things that had come up in our discussion was the use of CGI and the way that CGI became almost like a cane for movie directors to fall on uh, and, and producers really to, to lean on in need of being able to enhance your setting and your scenes. Well, it had become so much so that even for stunt work and even for what you're trying to get out of your characters in terms of what they're doing within the movie, it had become too extreme, I I think, to a certain extent. And I think what we're seeing today is more and more directors who, not only in terms of on, on a more art house variety, but also in terms of those who are in the mainstream are more and more getting back to practicality when it comes to stunt work that even though there might be a little bit more of a cost involved and there might be more of a uh, need for manpower to be able to fill that, that they are getting back to that a little bit more because they recognize that it does have an important role in being able to portray very accurately and in a very real way what you are trying to do within your movie and especially with action movies. Yeah. Take for, we'll give you one example here. So this last summer we have 
Dwayne the Rock Johnson jumping from one burning skyscraper to another burning skyscraper. Um, we'll compare that to Die Hard, where we have Bruce Willis jumping off the top of the building as the top blows up. Okay, similar scenes, but done very differently. Um, they used a lot of interesting editing shots where Bruce Willis is jumping with a fireball behind him. You know he's not jumping off the top of the building, probably some platform. But they did have a long shot. The building they used in that movie is an actual building in Los Angeles. It's actually the headquarters of 20th Century Fox called Fox Plaza, which they used as the Nakatomi Plaza. It was a brand new building still under construction, so they used their own building. There was a scene where they had an actual stuntman jumping off the top of that building, and they put some explosives on the top to blow it up, but it was a really cool thing. They did it for real. Then you watch The Rock jumping from one flaming building to another flaming building in just this last summer, and it's either a couple of different things. It's either completely CGI, or it's some kind of a stunt work with Dwayne Rock Johnson's face put over top, which I'm not against for stunt work, but... It was shown in such a way that you know it's not real. You know that it was completely unbelievable. Maybe a stunt person making a jump in a room that is entirely green and they're inputting everything else. It takes you out of the moment because you know what you're watching is not real. One of the best parts that movies were able to do was make the audiences go, wow, how did they do that? Like a magic trick, like sleight of hand. When everything nowadays is CGI or CGI-assisted, you know, oh, it's just CGI. No, that's a real thing. It doesn't really impact you in the same way because you're thinking to yourself, this is CGI, when you know yeah. that it is, when you can clearly tell. One of the first movies I remember that really made a point to really uh, put out the word that this is this is not CGI, this is for real, was Batman Begins. Um, you get the, look at the last one that had come out like 10 years before, Batman and Robin. Oh, it's CGI all over the place. It's a comic book movie. When they did Batman Begins, I mean, it was the real deal. You see Batman standing on the top of a tall, tall building in the real world. That was not some CGI thing. They got a real guy in a real outfit on top of a real building, and they shot him from a helicopter. It was real. That's technically stunt work. And it makes a beautiful shot when that happens yeah. because that's after he first um, captures um, – yeah, Falcone there, and then he, they show him when it's panning around like that. It's just sure. it gives you chills when you see that. Sure, and not everything in that movie is practical. He's hanging underneath the the elevated train or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, we got some CGI work there, but there's a lot of stuff that was done practical effect. And there was even more then in the Dark Knight and then oh, the yeah. Dark Knight Rises. For instance, with the Dark Knight Rises, one of the best parts of that movie is the opening scene where Bane and his goons are able to rob that plane in the way that they do. And it's it's so visually cool when you see that, uh, just the way that they suspend that plane in midair, they break off the wings, they break through the tail, all of that stuff. It's so cool the way that that all plays out visually at the beginning of that movie and sets the tone for what was to come. Oh, yeah. You know, even Dark Knight, they flip the truck. That's not CGI. They really flip the truck. Yeah, we talked about that. But yeah. you watch it and you're not like, oh, that's totally fake. Because, you know, you kind of understand how physics works. Even if you're not, you know, a scientist, you kind of understand how things look when they fall or when they flip or whatever. And when the things move, whether it's people or objects or buildings or whatever, and they move in a way that is not realistic... You know it. And what did they need, Dave? They needed a stunt driver who exactly. was willing to do that. So we're going to show a little love to some of the stunts that have gone right. And we're even going to commemorate some of the stunts that didn't go so right. And some of the actors that have said, nope, don't worry about the stunt double. I got this. 
We're showing love to the tough guys and tough gals. It's amazing, too, how when you look back at the past in movies, stunt work was even a part of older movies as well sometimes. Big part. For instance, here's a great example that my dad told me about a long time ago when I was a kid, was The Adventures of Robin Hood. Great movie. Awesome movie. I I love it. It's a favorite of mine and one of the classics of, of cinema. And... My dad really liked it in particular because of all the archery and the way that there was some really skilled shooting in there. And the reason was because professional archer Howard Hill did a lot of the shooting in that movie, the actual archery shooting and the bow skills in that movie. And he he um, he was a professional archer. We even have one of his movies, Tembo, where he goes on a hunt in Africa um, and shoots this uh, this elephant that had kind of been going on a rampage through these villages um, and it kind of takes you on that expedition. And so he told me a little bit about Howard Hill and the fact that, hey, he does the shooting work in The Adventures of Robin Hood. And they, they cleverly keep him out of the picture or they, they have his back turned to you so you don't know that it's him. And I was like, hey, that's kind of cool. I mean, young me was like, wow, that's neat. And now I recognize that, hey, that was some practical stunt work. And it puts a couple of things into focus. Number one just how tough it is to kind of mimic how do you get one person to look like another person when you're in a setting like that and how difficult that must have been in early film. And number two, trying then to, you're trying to basically insert them into that world. And because of that, your camera work has to be as such that you need to make sure that you're not tipping it, that this is a different person. And that's such a tricky thing that comes with filming stunt work in addition to the stunts themselves being tough filming it is really tricky too and for an early movie like that from the 1930s to to display that in the way that it did is i look i look at it now and i go wow and here's another one then too for especially when it comes to something like archery you think about the people who are getting shot i mean they had padding that they i I believe from what i'm reading no union safety rules back then right exactly (laughs) from what i'm reading the stuntmen and bit players were padded with balsa wood on protective metal plates and were paid $150 per arrow for getting shot by Howard, by Howard Hill. <laughs> Pretty crazy, right? Well, it was the time of the Great Depression. They'll take any money they could possibly get, even if it was shoot me in the chest with an and arrow. It, but it looks so real then when you watch <laughs> it in the movie. it was real. It's, they it's got great. shot by an arrow. I know. But, but that isn't it? I mean, it's great. It, it just And it, for an early movie like that to do all those things, it just goes to show... How much does go into doing stunt work? I mean, I'm sure we'll talk more about martial arts movies a little bit then too, and and some of the, especially the 70s and 80s, the cool stuff that they did. But there's a lot that goes into making stunt work happen, both behind the camera and, of course, in front of it, like we're talking about. Well, yeah, and we're not poo-pooing things where stunt work is done in a way that is clearly less than real. You know, things like The Matrix, for example, a lot of wire work in that movie. You know people didn't actually – well, the people did do that, but they were greatly assisted. But, you know, for the context of the movie – visually. Well, yeah. For the sake of the movie and what it's all about and it's a computer simulation and rules can be bent, okay, well, that means things like rules of gravity and rules – okay, okay, fine, we'll take that leap. It works. Charlie's Angels with all the wire work that you had, you know, Cameron Diaz and, you know – it was obvious that it was the case, but it was so tongue-in-cheek all the way through anyway that it worked. But when you get those moments like you say, 
you know, James Bond, for example, we just will tap back into our last podcast here for a minute. James Bond doing something that's legitimate. And then you can see clearly that's not Roger Moore. That's not Sean Connery. That's somebody else. Or you get a great stunt shot and then they'll insert a close up that you can clearly tell, clearly tell is no way the same guy problem. It kind of takes you out of it. So if you do it well and you shoot it well and you edit it well, then it works well. But anything, whether it's stunt work or anything that takes you out of the movie experience and for just a moment you forget, oh, I'm actually in my living room and this was a movie and everyone was okay and it was all fake. If it takes you out of that, then it takes you out of the enjoyment and the ride that the movies can take you on. The longer you can stay on that ride, the better it is. And stunt work makes a huge difference when it comes to that. And whether we're talking about a giant set piece that's a huge elaborate thing or whether it's just kind of moving fast or even a fake stunt fight, you know, fists flying and, you know, making a punch look real or whether you throw one or you take one, it makes all the difference. Wires even are okay because when you see it then in the movie, you can brush those things out these days. Like, for instance, one of the great stunt moments of maybe all time at the movies and this goes to back to this ties into a movie that's currently in theaters, Mission Impossible: Ghost Protocol, at the Burj Khalifa. Oh yeah, when they're filming in Dubai, there was some wire work that went on there with making that happen with Tom. Oh Cruise. sure, and yet you're you watch that movie and and I did for the first time just a couple of weeks ago. You you let me borrow it and I watched it, and you watch that scene and you shot an IMAX by the way. Beautiful, right? You can tell. It's it's just beautifully shot. Your heart's in your stomach when you're watching that scene. Like I was I was starting to to feel like I was especially when they use the when they pan the camera over the building like that. I mean it's the tallest building in the world. Oh yeah. And you pan over and you look down and you're like you you just start to you start to go pale but you know, when that happens. But you know it's not Tom Cruise on a green screen where they reproduce where they rebuilt no. like ten feet of the building and the rest is all painted in digitally. Oh no, he's really clinging to the side of the building with wires, but he's clinging to the side of the building some hundred some floors up in real world. Exactly, and even if there are wires involved, a you get that brushed out when you get into the movie, and it's like. Oh my gosh, that's insane! And then, and then, B with that final bit that he executes there to get back into the building. You're like, what the heck? That's just but what's, ridiculous. But whether there's wires, whether there's a pad that he falls on, whether it's a squib that goes off, whatever it is, is it believable? Yes. That's the ultimate question. Did you believe what you saw? Yes. Did you? Th- oh, that's totally CGI. Or did you believe it? Even if it's CGI done well, okay. But did you believe it? Your nerves that you're feeling during that whole time are real. Yeah, that's because very it was real. real. Exactly. And yep. in the next one, Rogue Nation, he's actually clung to the side of an airplane. He's strapped to it. You know he's not going to fall off. You hope he won't fall off. But he's literally on the side of a flying airplane. And that's why I I'm not a huge Tom Cruise fan. I'm not I, really either. I'm not a huge Tom Cruise fan, and yet I tip my cap to him. Yeah. For what he does in his movies, stunt wise, and the fact that even though he even though he just keeps getting a little bit older with each movie, he keeps pushing the envelope when it comes to doing these stunts, and you can't help but say, "Hey, bravo! That is great stuff, man! For for being willing to step into that kind of setting, stunt wise, 
even as a big-time star who's getting paid buco bucks and is doing production work on some of these movies, that he's still willing to step into it and really embrace the role fully and that he's not he's not just going to retreat to the trailer and let somebody else take over for that. It's, no, what can I do to contribute and to make this really real? Well, and sometimes you get actors that are pretty much earned their own stunt card. Burt Reynolds, we talked about. Tom Cruise, clearly. I mean, the most recent Mission Impossible fallout, he had one leap from one building top to another and broke his ankle on the attempt in real time. But that's the scene in the movie. So, Jackie Chan is a great example oh yeah. of another How one. How many bones has he broken? In right, real life? just getting into the martial arts side of things. You know, Jackie Chan, Bruce Lee before him. Oh yeah. You know, especially that's why I brought up seventies and eighties martial arts a little bit earlier too, because you got some really practical stunt stuff that would happen there, and it would happen in a blur. Well, how many like, times do you have a movie? martial arts or otherwise, where there's really a very minimal story, but the story is almost secondary, watching the car chases, and then they go running down the alley on foot, then there's a big fight in the thing, and then they repeat something like that six or seven times, and that's your movie, just watching the spectacle of Bruce Lee and how fast he could move. Yeah. That's why, just getting into another movie example, that's why I loved how Quentin Tarantino in Kill Bill blended so many different movie styles together and sort of gave... A piece, a portion of that movie to be like a love letter to the the 70s and 80s martial arts style with the way that part of that movie played out and how it visually played out then too with all that went on, especially there in in the fight scene with uh, involving the bride and and the oh sure that legion of of assassins then he's always paid an homage to the 70s style and the exploitation genre and all of that he's always kind of had a little bit of that 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 makes its way in whether it's reservoir dogs or pulp fiction or kill bill or you name it it's all there um, but he's also been a big fan of the practical stuff. You know, right. he's not really, I mean, Kill Bill is probably a little bit of a different example, but as much as can be done practical on set, he does it. You know what another great one was that that obviously probably involved a lot of wire type work to make it happen, but the scenes in Inception are just unbelievable oh, yeah. when jo- especially when Joseph Gordon-Levitt is moving through the rotating basically what was a rotating room there um when he's in that hotel during one of the one of the dream layers of that movie. It's amazing watching him fighting in midair, working through midair, trying to to suspend everybody and get them all tied tied together with that phone cord and then and having to fight through the midst of that as well. It created some really incredible visuals the way that that all played out. And we know we we know Christopher Nolan, he's a guy who is all for practicality and doing things in a very practical manner, especially even if it involves some stunt work, even if it involves pieces like that. It just it, it creates such a visual a visual effect that you cannot get with CGI. Well, yeah, and you knew that they were actually there on set. They had a lot of those rooms built on what's called a gimbal, which, you know, you can go watch um, Dancing on the Ceiling with Lionel Richie. There's an example of a gimbal. The room is built on a machine that'll tumble, basically like building a set inside of your tumbled clothes dryer. 
And so you put yeah. the scene on its side. Well, now you can stand on the wall. But if you keep your camera mounted on where the floor would be, well, then it looks like you're walking on the wall. Oh, wait, now the ceiling. Oh, and what if you've got yourself hanging from behind? The room is so that it's facing up. So the back wall is actually the ceiling, and you're hanging from the ceiling, and now it looks like you're just floating in the middle of the room. You're on a wire that's hidden by your own body. Well, it's true practical stunt work. It is stunt work. But you're actually there. They didn't paint anything in. Maybe painted out some of the wires, but it was done in the real world for the most part. And it looks like it. It does not take you out of the scene. And that's how those scenes were done. Good time to remind you, Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater. And we're pleased to have them aboard as a sponsor of the podcast as we're talking today about stunts here on Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. You know, Dave, with the way that that camera technology has advanced and the way that movie production technology has advanced. On the one hand, like I said earlier, and like we talked about several episodes ago, you can you can do a lot, especially computer-generated-wise, with the advancements that have been made. But on the other hand, and this is where I appreciate directors who go this route and and producers who go this route, you have the opportunity with all of those advancements to do filming of stunt work that has never been done before or sure. to get creative. Like you were talking about with camera placement in in positions like that, you can do so much more now than you were able to do previously. And I'm glad that directors are starting to to go that direction when it comes to how they film action movies and action sequences. Let me give another example. I think the Bourne movies are some of the best action movies of all time. Not only because of the emotional depth to those stories, but also the way that they're shot and how well they they do the action sequences in there. The Bourne identity was great because there was a lot of practicality, I think, to those fights and to the tension and the drama in that movie. It was an action movie that had a lot of substance to it and had and had fight scenes that were that really, when you look at them, they're they're pretty simple when you think about some of the, the fights that take place in The Bourne Identity. The set pieces kind of grow in the following two movies, The Bourne Supremacy and The Bourne Ultimatum. And part of what grows about them, um, especially in that chase in Russia in The Bourne Supremacy and then through a lot of The Bourne Ultimatum, is the way that the camera work starts to get much more gritty, especially in some of those car chases. And you really, it becomes that that hurried kind of camera work, which in some cases doesn't work. In some cases really doesn't work. But in those movies, it worked great because it just added to this, the, the way that things were getting out of control more and more progressively in some of those scenes with the way that it played out. And it added to what was already a great set piece with, with doing those car chases that took place. And then some of the fight scenes as well in the Bourne Ultimatum, which got which got very hurried in the way the camera work worked with it but still worked really well yeah i I, without going on to a rant i'm not a fan of the shaky cam even on scenes where people are just sitting at a table talking and the camera is still shaking oh yeah stop that stop that and if you see that's that's not practical no but when it comes to an action movie it can work it can work in moderation but in some of those scenes some of the shooting was fantastic and some of it was just downright horrible because you can't tell what is going on all you know is something's moving and you're not sure if it's the car or if it's the camera. Maybe the car wasn't working that day, so they just shook the camera to make it look like the car was moving. It just didn't work. It just All you know is that there's something moving. There's energy, there's action, something kinetic, and scene. 
I want to be able to tell what is going on. When the plane crashes and everything is rumbling and tumbling, well, then it should be chaotic. It should be something like that. That works. Um, but for the stunt show and you're doing a, a performance, you're doing your stunt work, and you can't tell what the heck is going on, problem. You know, you've got to, it's almost like dipping into the CGI box too deep. So you're, it's a tool that you've overused. So you're not as big of a fan of that then in the no. later in the later two board movies. If I can't tell what's happening, something's wrong. Now, quick cuts and quick edits are part of that. Some of it's the camera work, but I mean, you want to be able to see what you're putting on screen. If the guy throwing the punch is literally one sixteenth of a second that makes it onto the screen. That's barely fast enough for the eye to register since the general first one camera shot is generally 24 frames per second. That's like half of that. So that's it's it's too much. But see, that's why I'm saying that in moderation, I think it can work because they didn't they by no means use that as a as the law in those later two born and movies. And it's an opinion thing. Maybe it registers more on the subliminal. You know, you're aware something happens, but you're not aware of it consciously. You're just aware, you know, in The Exorcist, they put in little shots that were subliminal of a demonic face, just inserted real quick, one frame in the middle of those 24 frames per second. You didn't register it on the naked eye, but it registered on your subconscious. Maybe something like that in an action, yeah, it's a true story. Uh, something like that, perhaps, uh, in an action movie could do the same kind of a thing. Because but it's then it comes, different. Yeah, but then it comes down to a matter of, you know, perspective and do you like that, your taste. I personally do not. I want to be able to tell what I'm looking at. Well, on the flip side then, let me give an example of okay. something that goes the other direction. Think about Casino Royale. Sure. That that free running parkour scene, scene at the beginning, amazing, Excellent right? Scene. Great scene when when they have that chase going on in Madagascar. One of the great images of that was when they panned out during the battle between Bond and the and the bomb maker the that he guy, was chasing. Yeah. The, when they panned out and they're, it, it's basically a shot revolving around that crane, and you see the two of them just duking it out on top of that crane. It's real. It's real, and it looks spectacular from back out there when you when you zoom it back out like that and you're just panning around and you see them fighting on top of that crane that's a great visual that takes it out of the the up close grittiness of a stunt scene like that and you start to see the reality of it and that's part of what makes those stunt scenes really work oh, is sure. when you take a step back and you see the gravity of what's taking place you believe here. it right like in like in Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, when you see those shots where you see just what Tom Cruise is climbing here of For real. an oh my gosh kind of kind of visual like that, and then you get back to the up close and personal shots. Well, and whether you've got a crane that's hanging over it or, you know, in a long time you had a helicopter for like a crane shot. Now you got a lot of drone photography. Drones can get in all kinds of close where helicopters couldn't. Now you can get the real deal shot from really close rather than a helicopter at a safe distance. Right. I mean, it looks a whole lot more real, and it is real. And that's what I'm saying when it comes to using technology to your advantage is such a great thing for being able to bring stunt work in action movies into a whole new era. And and saying, hey, there is still great use for this kind of practical filmmaking and, and acting 
because we've got the technology to shoot this in a way that has never been done before. So now this is where we're talking about let's show some love to the stunt work because not every stunt goes spectacular. Sometimes they go spectacularly wrong. Yeah. Now sometimes it's something as simple, I hate to say simple, as a broken arm, broken leg, torn rotor cuff. I mean, look at Jackie Chan. How many injuries does he alone have? It's ridiculous. Some stunts famously go wrong. There have been deaths on movie sets. Some that are well-known, some that are not so well-known. Um, sometimes they're just accidental, and sometimes stunts are risky, and something just, you know, the, the we try to minimize the risk, but sometimes even if we can get that risk down to 7%, sometimes the 7% strikes and it goes wrong. Yeah. Um, and there's some famous examples. We talked about Bruce Lee. Well, his son Brandon Lee was famously accidentally shot on a movie set, if you're familiar with that story. There was a scene where... Um, when you're firing a gun on a movie set, it fires what's called a blanks. So if you have blank, a long story short, I could get real technical as to exactly what happened, but the long story short was there was a gun that was misloaded with an actual bullet. The bullet was dislodged, but lodged in the chamber. Then they fired a blank. Well, you already have a bullet in that, in that, uh, barrel. The blank goes off, sends that bullet down and Brandon Lee was shot and killed on the set of the movie with what was supposed to be a fake gun. And his character is supposed to die. People thought he was just really going for it, not realizing he's really dying and did. You know, so that was a tragic accident. The wow. Twilight Zone movie, uh, uh, Vic Morrow, who was a big who was a big star at the time, his daughter still active, Jennifer Jason Lee. Um, he was decapitated by the helicopter fell on him, you know, and it was uh, caught on film and everything that changed the whole ending of the movie. That was stunt work. That was, there was a trial about that. Actually, it went horribly wrong. Shouldn't have happened, but did. It's a tragic incident in movie making, but that's the kind of thing we're talking about where you get people putting risk on the line for the sake of entertainment and making it work. And sometimes it just doesn't work. Yeah. I had once heard an urban legend that there was somebody who died filming the the chariot race in Ben Hur. True, there was an urban legend of that. I, I no, that's true. I believe it is true. That's true because I I heard reports to the contrary that it wasn't. It's, but no, there's there was injuries and there was I don't remember, I'm trying to remember what the specifics were, but I think he got thrown and got trampled by the horse and got killed, uh, something like that. Um, but it does happen. I mean, it, I was watching, like I said, James Bond movie the other day, and it wasn't that remarkable of a stunt, but a stunt man was killed in it, where Bond is being chased down a ski hill by a guy on a motorcycle, and they both find their way onto a bobsled track. Well, somebody in that stunt somewhere was killed in the process, you know, and the whole scene lasts a couple seconds on screen, but that couple seconds cost somebody their life, you know, and that's people going forth in the name of entertainment. I'm a big Back to the Future fan. In Back to the Future Part 2, where the hoverboard gang goes through the window of the clock tower, um, we've got um, issues where, um, whatever the situation was, uh, there's issues where somebody goes to the clock tower and they crash. They missed the net. They missed the mat on the floor. She actually crashed hard on the ground and was seriously, seriously injured from it. So... That stuff, and it's in the it's in the, the final shot is in the movie, so you can see her hit the ground hard, and to not realize that she Oof. really got seriously, I forget what the last, lasting effects were, but they were lasting. It was an accident; shouldn't happen that way. She right. went through the thing harder than people thought, um, but they obviously weren't going to refilm it. But that's Problem. that's the thing, though, Dave, and that's that's the incredible thing is that these people are willing to step into these situations in the name of entertainment. Very 
evil Knievel-esque and you're doing this for the movie and because these people really enjoy stepping into the opportunity. For some people, early on in Hollywood, stunt work was a way of breaking in and getting a chance to get to be in film. For some, it's simply their own art form, really. And I think, honestly, that's where you say, we talked about a current event where the Oscars are going to get rid of the best popular film category. Well, here's where they ought to start thinking about seriously introducing a new category, best stunt work. And even if they do this in the, not the main Oscar telecast, but the special technical Oscar night, they have a few nights before the main Oscars, it ought to be recognized and not by the Stuntman's Guild or whatever does. I mean something mainstream, whether it's a Golden Globe, whether it's Oscars, and whether it's a giant elaborate stunt piece like James Bond would do, or just a really good wire work sequence like Inception, or just a good fist fight like uh, the Jason Bourne movies, they should be recognized in a big way by the mainstream. Yeah, uh, Helen Mirren actually was talking about this just a couple of months ago even. There's there's an article that's out about he, how she wants stunt performers to be eligible for Oscars well, yeah. and, and believes they should they should be recognized as such. Well, she's not a stranger to working with stunt teams also. I mean, she was on the Red movies and she's a little active in that movie. Right. But most of those scenes aren't Helen Mirren doing what Helen Mirren's doing. They cleverly insert somebody else to do the work in place of Helen Mirren. And that's not easy. But there are, like we said, some, some actual actors, like Jason Bourne for example, you actually had Matt Damon doing a lot of that stunt work himself. Harrison Ford famously doing most of his own stunts as Indiana Jones. Um, but you know, when we got, we're talking about Indiana Jones 5, I don't want, I, I, the one that makes Indiana Jones special part, one of those ingredients is that when you see him jumping on the, off the horse onto the tank, that's Harrison Ford. Right. Now, how old is he going to be when he films Indy 5? 87? Is he really going to be jumping off a horse onto a tank or something like that? You know it won't really be him. It's just one less thing that Indiana Jones can use to work. And it's a shame that they don't get recognized because, especially for as much as getting into character is praised and appreciated out of people who act it really should be appreciated the physical toll that that people are willing to take, whether it's a Tom Cruise. Not that it would help like an Oscar case for him. You still have to act really well yeah. as, as you're going into that, um, in addition to being able to do good stunt work. But, but at the same time, it'd be nice if those in stunt could have some kind of category that would be set up for them, maybe, like you said, on the technical side of things in some way. And Helen Mirren's right. I mean, she's yeah. obviously seen that up close of how essential those people are for for adding to the the acting and character development side of things stunt work is a big piece of that and a big piece of it because you're laying your body on the line here in addition to getting into your role there's a there's an element of the physical toll here that really is worth tipping the cap to it's it's absolutely art you know for one you got its own way in its own way you got to find a way to make it look good for one Obviously, there's science involved because, A, you're trying to minimize the risk. 
B, you're trying to make something that is almost impossible become possible, even if it's got a little help. But there's a lot of art, and not just the way that it's done, but the way that it is shown, so you don't you know, show the wizard behind the curtain. You don't want to see the air ram push the car into a flip. You don't want that to be seen. You want it to look like it was something else. So when it hits the car, there's an explosion that conceals the air ram that shoots the car into a loop, and you see the guy in the car, and you know he's not a dummy. They reinforce the car with something to make it less likely to collapse around the driver. So there's science in there, but there's a lot of art in there, and it just doesn't get the recognition Who would think that some of the greatest movies we've seen that were more action-oriented were as good if there wasn't, was Inception be the movie it was if it wasn't for some amazing practical effects or Mission Impossible? They're great story movies, but you ultimately got to have the action set pieces. If they weren't all CGI, there would just be something missing. Tom Cruise was not actually on top of the speeding train in the first Mission Impossible movie. It was all CGI. But what if they started doing those like they're doing them now where he's really clinging to the side of an airplane instead of, you know, really on top of a speeding train with a helicopter? They did that for real. Oh, my gosh. They didn't. But it looked like they didn't. Makes all the difference. Yeah. And it deserves its own brand of recognition then that comes with it, too. So, I mean, it's cool that that somebody who's a pretty mainstream actor, a pretty mainstream actress in this case, sees that. And wants to recognize that oh, yeah. because they've they've seen it really firsthand, especially once she I, I think once she dipped her toes into the world of action movies a little bit, it seems like she got a real a, a real eye opener in terms of what these people do and how important their work is to making these films happen in a very practical way. You know, in a lot of ways, back in the day when a lot of before theater was on film or on TV, it was on stage. And so a lot of actors had to go through a lot of different training, and some of that was like fencing work. Christopher Lee was a very well-known fencer. He learned entirely from doing movies. But by the time he got around to playing Count Dooku in Star Wars, he was, I don't know, 138 years old or whatever he was. So he was in a lot of those scenes, but then other actual battle scenes, they had a stuntman. And then they just digitally inserted Christopher Lee's face on top of him. I don't have a problem with that at all, as long as it looks legitimate. You know, you're kind of utilizing the best of both worlds from the toolbox, as long as it looks good. Speaking of that, I'm glad you brought that up, Dave, because I think we would be remiss if we didn't have some appreciation for the work that Andy Circus has done oh, yeah. in this regard. Because, he, and this is where. CGI can get used really well when you combine it with stunt work. And I, I was reading a little bit about this in an article before this um, before this episode of the podcast because it was talking about how Wonder Woman blended stunt and CGI extremely well together. And there are maybe no better three movies over the past decade plus that have done this than the new Planet of the Apes trilogy that has come out. I, they are remarkable movies, not just in their depth in terms of the story, but also in terms of how well they are filmed and the the way that they use CGI. It's incredible, the work that they do. And that's a combination of good stunt work and people willing to step into those roles and good use of CGI. And when you blend them together and use it well, the Planet of the Apes, the Apes movies are perfect examples of that. And it it's kind of a shame that Andy Serkis wasn't recognized more for that. People wondered, especially after Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, which was an incredible movie, if Andy Serkis might finally get recognized for an Oscar of some kind for his work that he did in that movie. Not only playing Caesar, but also doing the vocal work for Caesar as well. 
I mean, that's its own bit of stunt work when you are doing work like that and it's very CGI oriented. I mean, he had done that for Gollum and did an amazing work with Gollum. He had done it when he was King Kong yep. as well. Smoke in the new Star Wars yep, movies. That's its own bit of CGI work that gets done with that. And it, his work that he's done, Andy Serkis has been tremendous and he's been pioneering as well in the way that you can combine stunt and CGI exceptionally well if you're really good acting, a very good method actor in terms of the way that you use your body. And he is maybe the best that there is at that. I think there probably somebody smarter than I, which was not be a hard leap to find. <laughs> but I think there's some kind of a middle ground between visual effects and best use of digital technology um, that should be its own kind of category. I don't know how to better describe that. But, you know, visual effects can be a lot of different things. But digital is something different, whether you're talking about taking an actor and turning them into somebody else entirely, like, you know, Jar Jar Binks or something. Um, taking two actresses that are two actresses and blending them into a Siamese twin like they did for Big Fish. Um, something that could be done where digital is so misused, examples where it is used wonderfully. Like Avatar. Avatar yeah. is a really good example oh, of yeah. that, too. But at the same time, Avatar is almost a cheat. And I'm not saying that it's not worthy, but it is such a different world that it can look however you want it to look, and it's believable because it's not. The hardest thing to do, artists will tell you the hardest thing if they're going to do a, par a portrait of, like, there's Joel Hoover's face. The eyes are the hardest thing to get right, they say, or the mouth, because everyone knows how they look. Everyone knows how the mouth moves. When it doesn't look right... You know it. Morticians will tell you the same thing. It's hard when you're doing like an open casket, not to get morbid, to get those things right because everyone knows how they look and they rarely look right. But when you can nail it and you get something that's actually that exists in the real world that looks like things look in the real world, now that is everyone knows how it should look and it yeah. looks exactly how it should look. What is what is Pandora supposed to look like? I don't know. It looks like right there, you know? That's how it looks. Yeah. But it, you can't say the same thing if you get cars diving off the edge of the Golden Gate Bridge. You know what that should look like. Where do you see stunt work going, Dave, as we wrap up this episode? I, I'm curious where you see stunt work going in the future. I think stunt work is coming back in a really strong way and has for the past decade or so. And with the success of action movies like what we've just seen with Mission Impossible Fallout, which some are calling maybe the best action movie of all time, especially with the way that it incorporates so many real-life set pieces with the stunt work that takes place in there. I think it's a great time for stunt work and for stunts in the movies and the people who make them happen. And, in addition, a great time for blending CGI and stunt work in a skillful way because we're seeing more examples of that. And I think there's maybe still more out there in terms of what the frontier could look like in the future and the way that it gets utilized the right way, like we were talking about with Andy Serkis. I'll give you a weird analogy to answer that question. Elton John is going to come into this. You're like, what? Well, just wait with it. I am very, very for, curious. For a long time, popular music had you know drum machines that were doing all the backing. One of the big critiques Elton John said, and he said, even I was guilty of this for a while, but at some point, you need something human. Music is about human. Hire a damn drummer. You know, and a lot of people have. A lot of the synthetic drumming has kind of gone away. 
It's not gone. It'll never go away. Right. But you got actual people up on stage or up on the, uh, you know, on the, in the sound rooms and they're doing the drumming, they're doing the guitars, they're doing all, it's not so synthetic. Same thing with the CGI. You can't just do CGI. As long as you're going to have movies, you're going to have a need for stunts because it's got to look real. And as good as CGI is and is going to continue to get, you can't replace the real. You just can't. That's so a great analogy, Dave. When you get, you know, Dwayne Johnson diving from that one flaming building, it looks awesome, but it looks like it was filmed in a very controlled environment. You want to have a really good showing of a stunt that was done for real in a somewhat controlled environment. When John McClane dives off that fireball on the roof with the fire holes wrapped around his waist, that's because that's what really happened. It wasn't really Bruce Willis. But the way they shoot it, it doesn't matter. It's believable. Somebody that Curry, very well, as far as we know, could be Bruce Willis, is actually plummeting down the side of this building, fireball at the top, fire hose is the only thing that's going to keep him from crashing down to the Nakatomi Plaza, and then the fire hose jerks tight and he slams into the building. That was done for real. Yep. When it's done CGI and you could see every little wrinkle as he's showing in slow motion, you'd know it's fake. It, it's well done. It's very good artistry. Applause, boys. But it's art. It's not life. And if you can show the real life version of it, stunt work is only, is never going to go away. It's going to change. It's going to evolve. I think there's a growing appreciation for the real. We've seen enough of the fake. Um, and I'm not getting down on the fake. I'm just saying it's an overused tool. When you can do it for real more often than they have, you're going the right way. And I appreciate the creativity that people are coming up with with the way that they use the real. Even in, in simple ways, you can do some really cool things. Great scene during one of the chases in Skyfall was when James Bond is chasing after Silva in the tube, and they go sliding down that middle section. Oh, yeah. Um, next the to escalator. Those, next to the escalator. Yeah, they go sliding down that middle section. Even something like that. Hey, that's a little bit different. Hey, that's something that maybe you think about doing all the time. I saw a guy when, on YouTube do that, and he screwed it up. But these guys did pretty good. Right, exactly. You you think about that doing that all the time. But coming up with new ways to, to portray stunts on the screen, that's one of the things that I've appreciated about the Mission Impossible movies is that they come up with something new every time. Yeah. Go to Dubai on the Burj Khalifa? That is thinking. That is is really thinking big. And it worked interesting to the story. It it didn't just do it to do it. There was a reason they did it, and it was the centerpiece of the movie in a lot of ways. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you the question, but I'll answer my own question first to give you time to think about it so I don't put you completely on the spot. I want you to tell me to wrap up the show here. What is your favorite stunt sequence that you've ever seen in a movie? Think about it. I'll answer my own question to give you a moment to think about it. I am going to go. That is such an on the spot question. I that's, know. that's a hard one to answer in the moment because. Hey, give me a good one then. I've been, I've been thinking about it a little bit coming in, thinking maybe we'll address what's the best one or your favorite one, but that's. I know. That's tough in the I had I had to put you on the spot I'll, for I'll it. I'll think about it. Here's, here's my answer. Uh, I told you what it was off the air. Uh, James Bond. He's got some amazing stunt sequences in almost all of those movies. The Spy Who Loved Me, the pre-credit sequence. Bond has got bad guys after him. He's on skis, and he skis off the side of a mountain cliff. And they did this for real. This There was no CGI in 1977 when they did the movie. He flies off the side of the cliff in full winter gear, skis and everything, kicks his skis off, and then he parachutes out and it opens up and it's a Union Jack. 
first of all, that's tricky. You know, second of all, I don't know how steep the cliff face was. We'll say it was, you know, 5,000 feet. I have no idea. You have to get the shot. They did it in one take. You have to make sure that he's, you get the skis are away because you don't want the skis to come down and pierce your parachute because then you get problems. In fact, if you look at the shot, it almost does pierce the parachute. But you also have to get all of this in frame before he disappears behind the next mountain peak before the, the thing opens up. It's a great opening shot. And as it was done in real time, Bob Simmons is the guy that did it. Um, it was fantastic. It was spectacular. It was over the top, and it was completely 100% done in real world. My personal favorite. All right. I've got – there are three that come to mind for me, and they're – You got on me when I – the last podcast. Yeah, What's yeah. What's your favorite it's, perverse it's Bond true. movie? But, hey. You got to learn to do just hang one. On, hang on. <laughs> hang on a second. Let me let me differentiate because I okay. do have a favorite. I will grant you three. I have, I have a favorite. I'll I, grant you three. I promise. Okay. I have a favorite. Okay. There are a couple, though, that are like, <laughs> if I had a separate category for it, like think about the Oscars. Yeah, you have to give a best picture, but you have these certain categories for sure. certain elements okay. that you like. Okay. As far as a complete scene, I think the entire scene in Casino Royale with the um, with the free running and the parkour, parkour yeah. is an amazing scene. That really was. As a scene, as that's a scene. amazing. Just the way that the, the landscapes change and the way they go from place to place to place, that's an incredible scene on the whole. As far as jaw-dropping, no way. This is insane. It's the Burj Khalifa in Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. It's I can like, tell that made an like, impression on you. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> like, you do feel your heart dropping into your stomach when you watch that. It's And they shot it so well yeah. to get that effect of, what? You get that feeling during that. But my favorite is still in the hotel in Inception. I just I, I love it. It's it just is spellbinding the yeah. way that all of it takes place. The way that, especially when you when you put it alongside of what else is happening in the movie at that time, with the dream getting impacted by what's happening in other elements of the dream, it's so cool to watch that ripple effect then come into that particular area, and how Joseph Gordon Levitt's character is dealing with that, especially with having to to fight then during those sequences. It just makes for some. Great visuals watching the entire scene shift and change and mold and adapt. And then when he starts floating in zero gravity, basically, I, I love how sequentially all of that changes. So that's my favorite. Yeah. That's my personal favorite because it just is, it's just spellbinding. And it, it's part of a movie that had such great visuals as well. One of my great regrets is that I did not get to see Inception in theaters because visually it's just sparkling. Oh, like it that. is. Yeah, I, I, I can understand why you have three reasons. I can see? appreciate all of them. I told you, I had a favorite in there. But he got down on me when I said I got three favorites. You got to pick one. Dave, <laughs> Dave, I told you my reasoning. I had categories for those three, but I still had a favorite. You still have a favorite. That's right. I, I completely appreciate those favorites. Those were all three very, very good reasons to bring them up. Great. You done good. Yeah, it was a good question. So and I'm glad you got on me about that. So hey, next time you go to the movies, I mean you're probably not gonna see much of it with Jane Austen, but you got plenty of good stunt shows that are coming up here in the fall and beyond. Uh, so take notice of the work that was put into them, whether it's CGI or somebody actually jumping off a mountainside or whatever it is, it is its own art, it's its own science. It does need to be recognized. Um, stunt guys and gals, they work hard. They're putting their body on the line for yeah. your entertainment. And I, I do hope 
that there will be recognition that comes for them in the future because as much as method acting and getting into character is really important, part of that is your literal body of work that you are putting forth and putting on the line sometimes. It's worth recognizing, especially for those who do it really well. You know, you, I could put it to you this way. If those of you that think it's not really a true category that should be recognized in excellence with the Oscars and stuff, um, let me put it to you this way. When an actor or actress does their own stunts, they become very quickly aware of how influential it is and what a big contribution it is. Meryl Streep, probably the greatest actress in the world, she did most of her own stunts for the River Wild. You know, a lot of whitewater rafting. She worked her butt off. In fact, at one point nearly drowned, but she did her own stunts. Wouldn't it have been nice to have somebody that would just kind of look a little like Meryl Streep in the long shots and put her wig on or something and do the rafting for her? But she did it herself. That's stunt work. That is extra hard work, and people took notice of that. What's the difference if it's Meryl Streep doing that and then an emotional scene or just somebody doing the, the fall down the side of the waterfall or something else? You know, it's it's its own art. It does, and science, and needs to be recognized. Oscars or otherwise, but something mainstream, something big, something meaningful. Says I. I think that's a great place to leave it, Dave, I'm because with I think it's spot on. Yeah. Well, this once is- Rick and Nick uh, wipe their bruises off, no. maybe, maybe, what a bunch maybe. Of babies. I know. Cry babies. I thought I would left it on the baby show or the boss baby in the background, but no, it was just Rick and Nick. <laughs> this has yeah. been. This has been Rick and Nick Talk Flicks, sponsored by the Bemidji Theater. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Joel Hoover. I'm falling down the mountain, Dave Brooks. I'm going to go pick Dave up, and when I do so, we'll see you next time at the movies. <laughs>